get clear on your own goals personally. What are you really trying to achieve? People have different goals, man. Like, you know, just because I do the types of deals that I describe, value add, class B, 200 to 600 units, blah, blah, blah. That's because that fits my goals. I live on passive income. I'm cash flow focused. But what about, you know, Joe Schmo out there who wants uh, a $3 million nest egg of net worth to retire at age 50? He, he might care less about cash flow, right? He might want to do new development deals in urban areas, you know, downtown sectors, stuff like that. I'm not interested in that kind of product. So it doesn't mean that those operators are bad and the operators I work with are good. It comes down to your own goals. You're listening to the Gorilla State Investing Podcast. We're not here to bruise your bananas with guru sales pitches, overrated fluff, or any other kind of monkey business. We simply provide the ground-pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate. All right, we are live and welcome back to another episode of Gorilla State Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Magarowski. And today, uh, I'm really excited. I've got a full-time LP passive investor on the show, Travis Watts. Welcome to the show, Travis. Hey, Brandon. Thanks for the invite, man. Thrilled to be here. So like I said, Travis is a full-time LP investor. He is also the director of investor relations with Ashcroft Capital, and he is based out of Celebration, Florida. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Travis. Travis, give us just a brief uh, history of how you got to the position you're in, and I guess why real estate? Cool. Yeah, happy to. I think that the seed of real estate was really planted all the way back to high school. Um, my dad, big frugal garage sailor guy, and I was out there one summer and I was visiting. My, my parents had split when I was five and he's out there. He comes home one summer and I had nothing to do that that year. Uh, and, and he gives me Rich Dad Prophecy. So not Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but just a book in the series, right? And that was the first book I've ever read in my entire life on finance at all. And I was really good at uh, personal budgeting, you know, just personal finance, using a coupon, buy the off brand, save your money, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was working since age 15 and, and brought up that way by both of my parents. So this was a huge deal for me. This is a huge perspective shift. And I was in no way in, in a position to get involved with real estate back then. Obviously, I was still in high school, but I did plant a seed. I don't want to be in the stock market <laughs> based on this book. You know, I'm taking it like verbatim, every word that, that Kiyosaki's talking about. But I do want cash flow. I do want tax advantages one day without even really being able to comprehend what that even means. So I guess dumb luck, coincidence, whatever. We fast forward several years and in, in 2008, 2009 roll around. And real estate in, in my market kind of post-college was about 40% down. Government was handing out a $8,000 first time home buyer credit. And I thought, you know, it's now or never, you know, gather up these savings and do something with them, right? You got to jump in or, 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 or you're never going to do it. And so I did. And I bought a little two bed, one bath and I house hacked it. So I rented the spare bedroom out to a, a, a college student, which is the world I just came from. So I could understand that well. And then it just motivated me from there. I mean, I'm going to consolidate this story into, you know, I did fix and flips after that. I did vacation rentals. I spent six years, uh, Brandon, doing 
active real estate. Um, everything was hands-on, self-managed, do it myself. And that was really a problem over time because I, I ran out of time, number one. I didn't enjoy doing it, number two. And so I eventually learned how to be a hands-off investor, how to be an LP in syndications. And so, uh, again, I'm, I'm consolidating my story, but six years active, the last six years have been full-time passive. And now I, I invest almost exclusively in value add class B and C multifamily deals as a limited partner. So that, that's kind of the, the story in a nutshell, I guess. That's awesome. And that's, and that's uh, you know, most of our guests on here, Travis, are either active, they're active in the space, right? They're active yeah. GP groups trying to syndicate. It's active sure. brokers, active property managers, and you've categorized yourself as a full-time LP passive investor. So this is going to be some really good perspective for our listeners who mostly are probably GP groups, active syndicators looking to go after people like you for money. They're looking for those passive investors that have additional income that want to put it into real estate. So I want to go first into how do you choose who you're investing with as a full-time LP investor? How do you find them? How do they find you? Maybe you can go into a couple stories of bad experiences, yeah. good experiences, and how you end up picking who you're investing with. It's a great question. And, and there's really not like a formal process to it. You know, there, there's not a lot of education in this, this sector. So I appreciate the question. I wouldn't say that I started out the right way per se uh, when I became an LP. What I did is I thought, okay, I, I was used to investing everything locally. So I thought, oh, it's going to be really important that I partner up with someone who's also local, who's also doing local deals. And so that's what I did. The problem with that is this was not a top-notch operator. This was not a very vetted and experienced operator. This was just someone locally trying to get involved in the business and in the game. And so I would say that was that was a mistake from my perspective. So we, we did a couple deals. They were okay. The operator, quite frankly, couldn't really execute the business plan <laughs> was the biggest lesson learned. And so from there, I thought, okay, I have to get more training. I have to get more exposure. There's got to be more than just this, right? I'm living in a little bubble. So I went first from local real estate meetups and little local real estate groups to branching out online to forums like Bigger Pockets, trying to expand my network digitally and virtually. From there, people would introduce me to conferences that were happening nationwide. So and then I'd find myself on a plane out to Dallas to go do some multifamily conference or whatever. And then, man, I did conferences for almost two, two and a half years straight, you know, as many as I possibly could just bouncing around and, and networking. I met a ton of great people through conferences. So I am a big fan of attending for networking purposes, primarily. I mean, there's great education too, to be had, but it's a great place to meet people. And you'll find a lot of sponsors there that have their booth that you can meet face to face. I'm a big fan of, you know, face to face. I know we're still kind of in, in the COVID era, but you know, do a zoom call or something. I'm just a fan of, of that. So that's how I initially started uh, meeting groups. And, you know, you, you mentioned I'm director of investor relations with, with Joe Fairless at Ashcroft Capital. They were probably like the fifth or sixth group that I was introduced to in total, you know, of doing deals. Probably done about 40 deals as an LP, give or take. They were about five or six. And so I've done a lot of deals with them since. But uh, it was just a friend of a friend, man. It was through through face-to-face -face stuff. You know, Joe puts on the best ever conference every year. It was things like that that helped introduce me to a lot of operators. 
So for new, like if you're looking at newbie operators, right? Guys that are trying to break through on the syndication, yeah. doing their first syndication deal. Mm -hmm. um, you said early on, you put your money in with a local operator. Yeah. Um, kind of learned your lesson that, hey, this guy said he was going to do this, but couldn't execute the plan. Yeah. There's probably a lot of good newbie syndicators out there looking for their first deal that have a plan in place and can probably execute. Are you willing to take the risk with them? Or does it come down to, hey, man, you guys got to go get your first deal first before I put money in with you guys? Yeah, it, it's a great question. I've been known for for saying two things <laughs> publicly. One is uh, counterintuitive. I'll, I'll make comments like, put your money with a trusted, experienced, you know, vetted operator. Well, obviously, that's not what we're talking about. But at the right. same time, I've invested in a lot of student deals. And a lot of these folks that come out of these these programs that are out there, you know, there's probably five I could name off the top of my head where, where you're a student, you know, working with others to put deals together. I've invested in those deals because I'm also a big fan of helping people get started. I recognize how competitive it is out there, how difficult it can be. I recognize a lot of these deals are changing hands among the who's who. And when you and I get together to go start a brand new group from scratch, it's very difficult. So it's it, I see that more as, I don't want to call it charity. It's certainly not charity, but it's 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 just helping out, you know, the industry, right? And keeping it moving. I, I don't ever want to see that there's just, you know, two conglomerates out there and that's who everybody invests with. So um here, here's what I'd say. Get clear on your own goals personally. What are you really trying to achieve? People have different goals, man. Like, you know, just because I do the types of deals that I describe, value add, class B, 200 to 600 units, blah, blah, blah. That's because that fits my goals. I live on passive income, I'm cash flow focused, yada, yada. But what about, you know, Joe Schmo out there who wants uh, a $3 million nest egg of net worth to retire at age 50? He, he might care less about cash flow, right? He might want to do new development deals in urban areas, you know, downtown sectors, stuff like that. I'm not interested in that kind of product. So it doesn't mean that those operators are bad and the operators I work with are good. It comes down to your own goals and your own criteria. So one is identify your goals. Two is identify your criteria. Do you like Sunbelt regions? Um, you know, what states, what markets, cash flow, equity, combination of the two, A class, B class, C class properties, things like that. And then three, you're looking for a group that's doing those types of deals, obviously, right? That you get along with, that you can align your philosophy with. For example, I'll share a quick story. In um, in 2015, when I was making the leap from single family to multifamily, active to passive, I ran into a really well-known general partner. I, I won't name his name for privacy sake, but 25 plus years experience, well-known, trusted, yada, yada, track record, the whole deal. 2015, I'm like, hey, I jump on the a phone call with him. Mike, please put me on your list because I really want to do a deal with you, blah, blah, blah. He goes, Travis, <laughs> hate to tell you this, but in 2016, we're going to have a huge market meltdown. We're going to have one of the biggest financial crashes you've ever seen. He said, we're not doing any new deals. In fact, we're trying to offload our portfolio right now as much as possible. And we're going to sit on the sidelines till this happens. He's literally done, I think, two deals since 2015 in that whole gap of time. The point in that story is I didn't agree with the philosophy. I'm of the mindset there's a deal to be had in a downtrending market, a sideways market, an uptrending market. It, it's about creativity. It's about you know broker relationships, 
there's always going to be a deal that's happening. So I didn't subscribe to that. Thankfully, I, I didn't, you know, <laughs> end up doing a deal there because it's so important to align yourself with the way that that you think. You know? Yeah. So well, in a and, you, sense, and you're yeah. like you've seen like you're very educated on the LP side because I mean, like you, you say to yourself, you're a full time LP investor. So you understand your criteria, your goals, what you're looking for in other GP groups. There's a lot of newbie LP investors out there that say, yeah. hey, I want to get into real estate. I love apartments and they get these emails and they get these groups coming to them and it could be family, friends, colleagues. We have some in our network that we've sent emails to like, you need to get into real estate because of this. We've got deals coming and they get excited. How can they educate themselves on being a passive investor while they're running, you know, a W-2 job and, you know, they have a family and they have extracurricular activities. Where can they find out more information about how to set those goals? Yeah. So there's different levels of self-education. I, I recognize I am the type of person that's a bit extreme on kind of the self-education side. I mean, I'm a huge avid reader and I mentioned going nationwide, hopping around to conferences. Yeah. Uh, rightfully so. Most people are going to do either of those two things. But I would say that you have to have a baseline of education around this if you're going to be serious or professional about it as an LP. I would say at bare minimum, you got to at least read like one book. And there's great books out there. You know, the, the uh, just to name a couple, there's uh, Brian Burke's book, The Hands-Off Investor. It's all about being an LP and multifamily syndications. Um, granted, he, he's an operator with a group. So, you know, a little bias maybe towards <laughs> what they're up to. <laughs> and then, you know, but but rightfully so, right? Joe Fairless has a book, The Best Ever Apartment Syndication Book or whatever. Um, you know, it's like a 400-page book. It's pretty dense. But you can flip around to the active and the passive components take out what you need, but you need to at least have enough education through podcasts like yours, through watching and listening to webinars, maybe going to one conference a year, maybe reading one book or having multiple conversations with these operators. You, you've just got to understand the pros, the cons, the risks, things like that of doing this type of investing. I know some people, you know, will invest straight off a relationship you know, hey, you're a family friend of mine. I don't know what it is you really do. Don't really care. Here's 100K. I, I think it's a mistake. I think you, you ought to have a little more under your belt as far as what you're doing and why you're doing it. So is it the responsibility? Does Sorry, does the GP operator carry some of that responsibility to make sure that their pool of investors are somewhat educated or at least pushing information to them to say, hey, read this book, read this newsletter, watch this video? Is that fall on the responsibility of the syndicator? I don't know if it falls on the responsibility of the syndicator. What I would say is when you're on the phone with a potential investor, make sure you understand you know, what their goals are, what their criteria is. If they don't know, just make sure they're aware of what they're doing, right? Like, I don't think it's very responsible as an operator just to take someone's money because someone waves a check in your face and say, sure, whatever. I don't care who you are, what you know, what you do. Give me that money. I think that's a, that's a huge mistake. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's equally as important to be vetting out your investors. Uh, last thing you want to do is, is get that, that minimum investment investor that, that bugs you, right? 10 times a day for the next five years. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> just know who you're investing with. So on, as an, as an LP investor, are you completely hands off on the investments you, you, uh, you get into and you just wait for your quarterly newsletter and your reports and 
if you have questions, like how does that experience happen for you when you invest a deal? Let's say you put 50 grand in a sure. deal. When are you getting information back about the deal? What yeah. At what point do you step in and start asking questions? Good question. Yeah. As an operator, anyone who's listening, who's active, do as much as you can proactively, right? Try to address every question you can in your webinar and your overview. Uh, of course, you know, the PPM and all that kind of stuff, but, and in your, your monthly or your quarterly reports. And this is what I always say, the industry standards, probably quarterly for both distributions and for reporting, but me personally, part of my criteria is to look for monthly. That's just something that I like. And that's because I live on the income, first of all, right? Do I want to be paid once a month, once a quarter? How about monthly? <laughs> right? yeah. If I have the choice, that's what I'm going to go with. Um, and also, though, because if I'm getting monthly distributions, I'm probably getting monthly reporting as well, which keeps a little tighter pulse on what's happening. And the thing that that really is a pet peeve to me is when three, four months roll by, you haven't heard a thing. And then you find out something went wrong on the property a couple months back. You know, that really, really bothers me. So be proactive with your investors, right? For example, a couple of years ago, I have a lot of uh, Dallas, Fort Worth properties. There was a tornado that went straight through the heart of Dallas, Fort Worth, right? The best operators, in my opinion, were reporting that day, the next day, and the following day to investors. This is what happened. You may have seen that in the news. Our properties are fine. This one had a little bit of damage. This is what we suspect it might be and might cost and how it's going to be handled. And we have adequate insurance. And we have adequate reserves. The, 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 I wouldn't call them bad operators, but the not so great operators said nothing. Just, I, I guess, hope that everything went well and we'll let you know in three months. <laughs> you know, So not a fan of that. Be transparent and just be upfront with people. Say, transparency, good, good transparency yeah. and honesty, right? Is and uh, just the experience on our end is we just did our first deal a few months ago, or I guess a, a couple months ago, and we're getting to the point now where we're going to send out that information to our investor pool. And that's yeah. why I want to ask a question like, is it, should we be sending something out once a month, once every two yeah. months? What's too much? What's too little? Where's the yeah. balance? Well, let, I think that gets back to who's investing in these deals mostly, right? Most people aren't like me, full-time LP, et cetera, doing all this active stuff in the industry on the education side. So most people are a doctor, dentist, lawyer, attorney, business owner, pro athlete, entrepreneur. They're busy people that are career focused on what they do. They're on their highest and best, and they're just parking some capital, right? So how often do you want to be updated in that situation, right? You're working Monday through Friday. You're trying to relax a bit on over the weekend. Do you want reporting every single week? You're probably going to be deleting it because it's overkill. You know what I mean? But like I said, on the flip side, do you only want one update that's one page every three, four months? Uh, I, I would think that's maybe a little, uh, you know, too, too long of a time frame. So I prefer monthly. That's my answer. But some operators are are quarterly that I invest with. So it yeah. really kind of depends. Um, if you're going to do quarterly, put enough information in your report. That's yeah. the thing, right? Put some financials in there, put some photos, put some videos, like give them a real update. Don't just say, well, occupancy's here, collections are there. All right. Right. And like you said, months. it's important for us to understand who the investor pool is. There might be some guys, this is their first deal that they've put money into and don't understand that, oh, I'm only going to hear something quarterly. You may need to have a little more touch points with them early on to get them com comfortable with the deal and the way the communication line is going to work. 
Yeah. Be focused too on these reports. Again, what are you leaving out? Because what you're leaving out is what questions you're going to get. <laughs> so if all you, if all you want to do is say, you know, occupancy and collections, end of story, people are going to, well, how are the renovations going? Right. And, and, and how is the, and how's the time frame and how's the, how's the budget going and how are we, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So unless you want to be, you're going to do 10 times more work by trying to skimp on, on doing a lousy update. Right. <laughs> so just do a full blown update and hopefully you've answered everybody's questions. That's yeah. It. All right. I'm going to dial it back. A few minutes ago, you mentioned, we talked about investing with new GP groups versus experienced GP groups. Yeah. In your experience in investing in both sides, have you found that when you invest with student groups that come out of these conferences that you get a bigger piece of the pie as an LP versus investing with an established group who maybe is going to take a little bit more of the split? Exactly. To your point. Yeah, it's pros and cons, right? And so the more established a group gets, the more track record, the more experience, technically the lower risk, right? And so because of that, you may be paying higher fees to be in a deal, or maybe you're doing a deal with a little less cash flow or equity upside or, or what have you, right? Uh, versus some of the deals I've done with newer operators have a, a much more favorable split, much lower fees, et cetera. And some of them have you know sold early and we've, we've far exceeded the expectations. But on the flip side of that, I've done newer operator deals where the operator, like I said, couldn't execute the business plan. And what was on paper saying, 20% IRR was really like a 10% IRR just because they, they couldn't really do it. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's, it's, it's risk and reward. It's, it's higher risk, higher reward is how I look at it. So again, that gets back to your own risk tolerance, your own criteria, what makes sense to you in terms of that. I would say, don't be too fee focused, right? I, I, like I made this mistake is why I say it. Like when I first got started, I was looking at deals and I was going into analysis by paralysis, just crunching numbers, right? Almost to the point of naively disagreeing with the operator. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I think your CapEx should be this. Well, I think, but you know, it's not my thing. Like, this isn't my specialty. It's not my, and at the end of the day, what's it all matter if they can't even do what they say they're going to do in the first place, right? Who cares about a fee being 2% or 3%? Like I lost 10% basically <laughs> yeah. on the potential yeah. of, of, of the, um, the outcome. So personal question for you. You sound like you're very educated. You're very smart. You've done your homework on all of this. Why are you not on the GP side? Why are you not syndicating? You seem like the perfect fit for that. Great question. So I'll share a story that, that changed my life around 20, as around 2015, as I was making this transition, I was really doing a huge outreach to, to get educated. There were two gentlemen that I was introduced to out of a local, about a 400 person accredited investor meetup group. And one of the guys was actually the facilitator that created this group. So one guy's in his, in his sixties, one guy's, I think in his seventies, as far as age, both these guys have been full-time LPs for over 25 years, I think. And mostly in real estate, private placements, AKA syndications. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time in my life that I recognized that's a real path that you can have, you know, and these guys had what I call 
total time freedom. Okay. They were, I guess you, you'd call them retired. I mean, they certainly didn't have to work anymore, but you know, they traveled a lot and, and, and they would ski and they were always gone, you know, out of the country and, you know, and they were with their family all the time. I thought, you know, that's really cool because to me, what passive income and what cash flow really means or what it can do for you is it can give you flexibility over your lifestyle. So what I didn't enjoy about being active back when, when I did flips, et cetera, is that it was always something that prevented me from being able to take that vacation or do that event or, or what have you, because I got to be at a closing. I got to turn over a unit. I got to fix this and do that and hire this person and work with this contractor. So for me personally, it was about lifestyle and it was about thinking big picture, and thinking long-term with my wife, and we love to travel, by the way, internationally and, and nationally. And, and I thought, this is what I want to build for us, is, is a lifestyle that we can move around and, you know, we can, we, we, we choose to rent versus own our, our owner-occupied places, you know, uh, or, or I should say primary residences. And, and I love that. I just love the freedom that comes with it. So that's why I, I truly don't intend on ever being a GP. Um, nothing against that whatsoever. There's great money to be had, et cetera. But I believe you should go with your highest and best potential. And as I mentioned earlier, I didn't enjoy it, man. I just didn't enjoy being active in the space uh, yeah. in that regard. So, so I went I mean, to like go do you, other you, things. You said it, right? You want cash flow, passive income financial freedom to be able to go travel, do with the yep. kids, whatever you want to do. Right. So here's, uh, this may be a glass ceiling or a mindset thing, but you know, when you get started in real estate, they tell you, you can do it without any of your own money, right? You can go leverage the bank. You can go do the fix and flip. You can do the house hack. Mm -hmm. When I picture a full-time LP investor, I picture somebody, a doctor that has a bunch of money that's ready mm -hmm. to deploy to get started. If I want to be a full-time LP investor, how much money do I have to have? And if I don't have that money, like how do I become, get into the role that you're in as a full-time LP? Yeah, great point. And I think being actively to, to your point, absolutely, right? Could you, is it possible to, to, to be a GP, right? And to go raise capital from others and to go do a deal with $0 of your own money in the deal, thus getting splits and things? Yeah, absolutely. Or could you get a hard money loan and go do a fix and flip and put none of your own capital in the deal, but in exchange, you do all the labor and time? Sure. So, I'm not a believer that, you know, it takes money to make money. However, when it comes to what I do, yeah, you got to have some, some capital to work with. And so how did I get there? Um, four things really, you know, do your highest and best earning potential as early as you can in life. Everybody's going to be different there. For me, I took a job, unfortunately, that I hated, but it was in the oil industry and I worked a hundred hours a week and I worked out of state and I worked in Saudi Arabia. And I mean, I, I just worked my butt off when I was single, no kids, no family. And I thought, what else do I got going on? I'm just going to make some money. I did that. How many in years addition, did you do that for? How many years did you do that almost, for? Almost uh, about six years. Holy. Yeah, six man. Six years, hundred hours a week. Yeah. Yeah. It was brutal. It was yeah. like the, the hardest point in my entire life by far. Yeah. And, and it was a huge sacrifice. And then number two in that equation is live on as little as you can for a period of time. So again, about six years, it's like I never left college. You know, I'm eating ramen noodles 
I'm making grilled cheese. <laughs> you know, I'm not going on vacations. I'm not partying, not drinking alcohol. I'm not even dating. I'm just working for money and I'm living on pennies. You know what I mean? And that's, and, and again, I'm not giving anybody this advice. I think this was like this again, it was the worst period of my life. <laughs> but the point is highest and best earning potential, live on as little as you can for a period of time. Number three, invest in something, uh, just period, invest in something. Don't just save. Don't just put the cash under the mattress. Don't just leave it in the bank. Invest in something. To me, something that cash flows. That made all the difference for me. And then number four is avoid bad debt. You know, quit putting crap on your credit cards and financing cars. And if you have student loan debt, get rid of it, that kind of stuff. So those were kind of four steps that I used over a period of about six years to accumulate a nest egg that made sense. Now, if I went to go put that to work passively, you know, how much cash flow would I have basically? And so in 2015, I liquidated everything I owned basically, except for my car and my clothes. I, even the house I lived in. So I sold all my single families, all my rentals, all my flips, all my buy and holds, everything I owned. And I paid all the taxes. Again, I'm not saying it was the, the smartest strategy in the world, but this is just what I did. And then what was left net? That was like my true net worth, okay? And then this is how I thought of it. Again, not a financial advisor, not telling anyone what to do, but this is how I did it. I said, I'm going to use the 8% rule. And what that suggests is if I can invest this money into something that produces 8% annualized in terms of cash flow, okay? I'm not talking about equity upside and anything else. Cash flow, passive income, dividends, interest, et cetera. Then how much do I need? Well, let's run the math. 625,000 times 8% equals 50,000 per year. 1.25 million invested at 8% equals 100,000 per year. So I, I, I won't disclose what my number was, but it was enough to leave my oil field job and to pursue other things that I wanted to do actively, right? So then I, I could pivot towards, I actually went to go work for a, a Wall Street firm, basically a, a brokerage house to go learn stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Cause I just wanted to know, I just wanted to be able to apples to apples, compare that to real estate and see if I was doing the right thing, that kind of stuff. But it gave me the freedom to not have to have that job in the first place. And then later to quit that job because I didn't like it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's what it really came down to. And so that's my, my, my message to everybody is, and those are the numbers, at least that I associate with is using the, the 8% rule. So I still use that today, by the way, some things in my portfolio, cash flow higher, some cash flow lower, but on average, I can get about an 8% annualized return. All right. I'm going to recap and let you get a drink of water. Cause that was awesome. Uh, I'm going to recap. So you spent six years working your tail off, uh, in a job that paid a lot. You probably didn't love it. Uh, you weren't yep. married, didn't have kids. And yep. then you spent a lot of that time living on as little as possible to build the nest egg. You take yep. the nest egg, you apply the 8% rule. Yep. Early on, were you investing in stocks or real estate? So ne never in stocks in the beginning. So it was all active real estate. Then it was passive syndication real estate. Do you invest in stocks today? Some REITs, for example, in, in March of 2020, when the markets dropped about 30%, there were some REITs I got into that were historically paying 8 to 10% dividends that now, if you, if you factor in the price you're paying and the, and the dividends came back, coincidentally, double-digit cash flow. So yeah, I hold some of that. I just don't like the volatility. I don't like that day to day, you know, I'm up 50 grand, I'm down 50 grand. Like I can't stomach that in large numbers, but yeah, yeah I do. I do some of that. All right. So let, I want to hear your why. Why real estate? Why? What are the benefits that you've seen 
outside of the cash flow? Because we understand you're investing, you're trying to create passive income yeah. cash flow so you can go do whatever you want in life. What yep. else, what other benefits do you have inside of real estate? I think, you know, real estate's always been appealing to me because it's, it's tangible, right? Touch it, feel it, visit it, switch business strategies. You can convert a motel into apartments. You can, you know, you can house hack, you can buy a home that you live in and rent out bedrooms or get a guest house out back and rent that on Airbnb for 2000 a month. There's a lot of cool stuff about the flexibility and the necessity of housing. I mean, just look at what crisis we're in today, right? I mean, a, a, just a lack of of housing, you know, especially affordable housing. So I like being in a space like that. And then two, I, I never got into real estate for the tax reasons. As I mentioned, that was like something Robert Kiyosaki pointed out years ago before I was even really paying taxes. And so I didn't quite comprehend it, but I'm telling you, man, the, the more you make in life, I mean, the more impactful that gets, you know, and when you start thinking, you know, off, off a, off a hundred thousand dollars a year, if you can save 30%, that's 30 grand, you know, and that's just savings, you know, that's going to dwarf the using a coupon, you know, and getting a dollar off your, your can of beans at the grocery store. Just forget that crap, you know? <laughs> and that's how I was raised is like with that scarcity mindset, we got to go drive five miles out of our way to go save 10 cents a gallon on gasoline. It, it just, it, you got to pivot to, to think in that way. So anyway, taxes are, are a huge reason and private real estate specifically. So when we're not talking about publicly traded REITs, real estate investment trusts and stocks, we're talking about private real estate, much more stable, much more consistent, much more predictable, especially if we're talking about cash flow than really any other investment I've ever tried out or known about. So those are kind of my high levels on them. So you've probably been approached by a lot of GP groups from, you know, beginners to intermediate to ex uh, experts about investing in their deals. What, this is kind of a segment that rams you, what bruises your bananas? What bruises your bananas about the way that some people approach you and it's immediate turnoff for you? Yeah, I, immediately to the sale like in the first 60 seconds, like I was at a conference and there's a guy going around with a, thankfully with a 506 C offering that you can publicly advertise, but he's made a business card with his deal on it, with all the numbers. And he's just handing it randomly to everybody. Just, Hey, how you doing? Here's a card. Hey, how you doing? Here's my card. And it's like, you don't know me. Like why, what even makes you think I'm an investor in the first place? Why would I want to do that kind of deal? What's my risk tolerance? It, it, you know, am I even accredited? You don't know anything. I think that's a terrible, terrible approach. Um, equally so when you hop on the phone and it's, again, it's all just about the deal. Hey, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. You know, let's talk about our deal that we have going. It's blah, 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 blah. You know, ask questions about the, the person. You have to get to know. This is a relationship business. You know what I mean? And that kind of transactional activity is very short-minded. You know, if you're going to go out and do that kind of approach, you're going to be out of business in two years. So yeah. that's my take on it. Well, and you said it early on in the conversation is that as a, on the syndicator side, you want to pick investors that meet your mold as well. Because yeah. if I approach Travis and say, Hey, Travis, I know you got $50,000. I got a great deal. You could be a psychopath. You really yep. could. You could, you could get in the deal and then blow me up every single day about the deal, not yep. be as passive as you said you're going to be and ruin our experience as operators. So it works yep. on both sides. So the guy handing out the business cards, 
I mean, he may have handed it to a guy that wants to invest a deal, but that you don't want that investor to be part of that deal because of the way that he acts and behaves. Yep. hundred percent. hundred percent. Awesome, man. Well, uh, just trying to, just going to kind of wrap this up, Travis, what advice do you have to young GP groups um, and also young LP investors that may not have the capital they have right now? I know you walk through, you know, work for six years, create the nest egg, create the 8% rule, but what, uh, looking back, what, what would you tell yourself 10 years ago? Yeah, good question. And I've been asked this question too. Would I, if I started over when I was 20 or whatever, when I got into real estate, would I be a passive investor day one? The answer is no. For the reasons that we talked about, where's the nest egg? Where's the net worth? Does it make sense to put everything I got into something that produces 8% a year? I would have had 150 bucks a month cash flow. Does that make any sense? Is that motivating? Is that financial freedom? No, like I wouldn't have stuck with that. So, so like I'll take my nephews, for example, ages between uh, 15 and, and 19 right now. Uh, I have four, four nephews. So I've opened brokerage accounts for them and I've started explaining the benefits of passive investing. Okay. They're not at a point where they can do syndications. They're not accredited investors, et cetera. But they, I put, you know, a few hundred bucks in each of their accounts. And then every Christmas and birthday I add to it. And then we buy these, these REITs and I show them that, look, every single month, even though it's only a few dollars that you're getting, okay, you just keep adding, man, just keep adding to that. And I hope they stick with this, but it, it's more about the idea of building financial independence long-term than it is about real estate syndications. You know, they may never get to that point. They may not want to take that approach quite frankly, I don't care. It's just about, I hope they they keep in their mind that investing doesn't always have to be buy low, sell high. It doesn't have to mean max out your 401k. And when you're 65, take a peek and hopefully it's, it's at a number you like, you know, that's not the way, in my opinion, to invest. <laughs> so, uh, so that's what I'm trying to instill in them. That's what I'd say to anybody who's saying, Hey man, I got whatever, 5,000 bucks and I'd love to do what you do be patient. It takes time. Work on your highest and best earning potential, save some money, invest for cash flow, et cetera, right? Don't, don't make the, the poor decisions to take on debt and buy crap you don't need to impress people that don't care about you, all that kind of stuff. So, so that's the LP side. From a GP side, I'd say, again, it's highly competitive. Uh, this is a relationship business, don't be salesy. Don't be, you know, desperate. You know, we got a deal. We need funding. You know, I know you have money. Like, please do a deal with me. Please invest with, you know, just take a step back, pause, recognize too, you're going to get momentum over time. Okay. You're going to do deal one. It's going to be hard as hell. You're going to do deal two. And it's going to be a little easier. <laughs> you're going to do deal three, and then you're going to have returning investors. Then those returning investors, if you take care of them, are going to start referring their friends. Now you're going to have more leads and more people coming into your deals. And over time, hopefully you're at a point where, you know, 50% plus of your capital is coming from returning investors and new leads are coming from referrals. But this is the long game. Okay, so start with the end in mind. If you're going to be a GP, if you're going to be active, this is a 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 year kind of mindset. This is not a give me your money today and we're going to flip a deal and I'm going to make money and then woohoo, because like I said, you you will piss a lot of people off and you'll be out of business. <laughs> awesome stuff, man. All right, where can people find you, Travis? 
Yeah, I'm all over, you know, social. So, um, you know, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. My last name is Watts, W-A-T-T-S. Um, my handle on Instagram and Facebook is at Passive Investor Tips. And then I've got a downloadable PDF. You want to set up a call with me, it's ashcroftcapital.com forward slash Travis. And I've got my calendar on there and some 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 freebies. So great stuff, man. I appreciate you being on. Thanks so much, Brandon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Gorilla State Investing Podcast, where we give you the ground-pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate. Learn more at realfocus.org slash gorillastatepod.